you're just visiting with us this week, you have found us in the middle of a study through Jesus' letters to the churches in the book of Revelation. We have had two studies thus far this summer in this book. We looked at the vision of Jesus Christ that John received in John chapter 1, the first week, and last week we read the message of Christ to the church in Ephesus. This week we are looking at Christ's message to the church in Smyrna. Revelation chapter 2, we're going to begin reading in verse 11, I'm sorry, verse 8, uh, and read to verse 11. You can find that reading beginning on page 1028, if you picked up a Bible on the way in. A letter to the church in Smyrna, Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. Before we read God's word, let us go to him in prayer again. Please join me. O Lord, our God, righteous and true are all of your ways and all of your works. Your word is ever sure, and yet we come, very often with hearts that are dull and ears that are closed to hear the word of Christ. We pray that you would open our eyes and unstop our ears, that you would give us ears that are open, that you would sustain we who are weary with the word of Jesus Christ, your servant. We pray that you would turn our eyes to him and cause us to hold fast to the word of life as you have revealed it in him. We pray that you would do this by the work of your Holy Spirit and ask in Jesus' name, amen. Hear now God's word as we find it in Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he indeed add a blessing to its reading and to its hearing. It was a Saturday in spring in the city of Smyrna. And workmen had left their benches. Merchants had left their places and their stalls in the marketplace. And housewives had left the washing and the grinding and the cooking to be done another day. And some 20,000 people were clamoring into the amphitheater in the center of the city that overlooked the Aegean Sea to the west. Because today there was to be a spectacle in Smyrna. Godless men subverters of the empire, and enemies of Caesar were to be executed. One of the villains being led uh, to the slaughter was an aged man by the name of Polycarp. Polycarp was something of a ringleader for these criminals. His followers called him a bishop. They listened to his teaching, and they spread his thoughts and his seditious lies, and they tried for a time to hide him from justice but the eyes of Rome are everywhere. And he was found. 
He was being brought at last to the faith that everyone knew that these so-called Christians really deserved anyway. And as he was brought, he was taken first to the chariot of the magistrates. Rome, after all, is, uh, is merciful, not willing that any of her citizens should perish without cause. And so Polycarp, like all of the other prisoners that day, was given a chance to recant his faith, a chance to pledge his allegiance to Caesar. It's a small thing, really, just two words. Caesar Curios, Caesar is Lord. Just a small thing, just two words, just a pinch of incense, and turning away from this disgraced Jewish carpenter that they all claimed to follow. And nobody could understand why they wanted to follow him anyway. He'd been dead for at least 120 years. He was one who was crushed by the living and powerful arm of Rome. Why follow him? Why not be on the side of victory? Why not align yourself with the most powerful force in all the world? There's a lot of safety in those two words. Caesar is Lord. But they found very soon that Polycarp would not move, and he would not recant. And when they found that he would not budge from his faith, he was removed from the chariot, and he was led to the theater. And the Roman official hushed the riotous thousands, and he spoke to the old man. Swear by the fortune of Caesar. Swear, and I will set you free. Reproach Christ. Polycarp replied as though he had steel in his spine. Eighty-six years I have served him, and he has never done me injury. How then could I blaspheme my king and my savior? So the proconsul tried another approach. I have wild beasts, and I will throw you to them if you do not repent. Polycarp said, call them. He said, if you despise the beast, I will have you devoured by fire instead. Repent. Polycarp said, you threaten me with a fire that burns for an hour and is extinguished. And you know nothing of the coming judgment and the fire of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you stalling? Bring whatever you like. And they did. And Polycarp was tied to a stake, and his body was burned, and he was stabbed. And thus it was that 60 years after the Lord wrote this message to this church in the same city, Polycarp answered the call of Christ to his faithful people. It was the call to be fearless in tribulation and faithful unto death. It was the call to receive the crown of life from the living Savior. Well, Polycarp knew well the cost of following Jesus. Church history tells us that he was ordained as a pastor in Smyrna by John the Apostle himself, and, and that at the time that this letter, Revelation, would have reached them, he was probably in his late 20s. There is a good chance that it was Polycarp, the young pastor, who first read this message to the believers in Smyrna. And Polycarp was one of the ones who watched as his own friends faced the 10-day persecution that Jesus tells them about here. Polycarp knew what this was about. He lived, as so many others have lived throughout the centuries, with a realization that following Christ might mean affliction. 
And it might mean bodily harm and hatred, and it might mean imprisonment, and it might be death. Polycarp knew what it was to live and to die as a suffering Christian. But he also knew the courage, and he knew the comfort that comes when you know the Savior who has died and lives forevermore. Today we are studying the shortest of Jesus' words uh, to his churches, his seven churches in Revelation. There is not an ounce of reproach in this message. There is nothing the Lord calls these people to repent of. Uh, This is praise and it is encouragement. This letter is direct and bold and beautiful. It is uh, the Savior's message of comfort to his suffering church. And those are the two anchor points that we're going to use to understand this passage today. We're going to see first a suffering church and second a comforting Savior. A suffering church and a comforting Savior. Well, Jesus begins his message to this suffering church by speaking of tribulation. He knows their tribulation. That was the same word you might remember back in chapter 1 that John used to speak of what there was in Christ. He said that I am your brother and I am your partner in the tribulation that is in Jesus Christ. And we don't get very far into these churches before we see that played out. And Jesus is speaking about tribulation in Smyrna. He's talking about pressure. That's really what the word means, tribulation. It is, it is that constant downward press, that, uh, that compression that persecution feels like. Tribulation explains, uh, in a sense, what it feels like to live as a Christian. It's like trying to breathe with someone sitting on your chest. There is pressure in the church, and Jesus says, I know this. And he speaks of the pressure first of of poverty, and that's probably a good touch point for us. Because we know something of that. If you've ever had a season in your life when you've been out of work for a little bit longer than you would like to be out of work, you know the pressure that comes with that financial difficulty. It's a pressure that puts your plans on hold, and it, and it cuts expenses out of your life, and you spend all of your time uh, planning and calculating and trying to stretch and see how long you can continue as you currently are. There's a pressure involved in poverty. It feels like you're living in a wine press, and uh, the crank is continually turning, and which each, with each turn, it feels as though you're being pressed more and more to the breaking point. That's what he was speaking of for the church. In Smyrna, there was the press of poverty. And this press was constant. In fact, in the New Testament, there are two words that are used and can be used to speak of poverty. One of those words means that you don't have much. And the other word means that you don't have anything. And that's the word that's used here. It speaks of destitution. It speaks of not having uh, the basic necessities of life. Always having to search for food or for clothing or for shelter and just simply being destitute. And there is tribulation here in Smyrna. It really wasn't all that uncommon for Christians who lived in a large, prominent city like these believers lived in. Smyrna was a large city by the, uh, by the standards of the ancient world, 200,000 people in the first century. It's just a little bit bigger than, uh, than the Lowell metropolitan area at 170,000. You had a much smaller place. The population density was incredible. It was a prominent city. It was one of the first cities in the ancient world to uh, swear loyalty to Rome, before Rome was even a world power. And so they were closely allied with, uh, with the Caesars and with, uh, with the health of the empire. 
And that means that in a place like Smyrna, if you wanted to do anything, if you wanted to be a member of the local tent makers guild, if you wanted to have a seat in the marketplace to be able to sell your wares, if you wanted to own a piece of land or buy or sell produce, that means that you had to be involved in the cult worship of the empire. A little bit of loyalty to Caesar, a little bit of sacrifice to the Roman gods. And if you didn't have that, if you wouldn't, if you wouldn't do that, then you had nothing. You had no food, you had no clothing, you had no home. You had nothing but destitution and the charity of your brothers and sisters in Christ who were also suffering the same thing. And there was pressure and there was poverty. The other thing that Smyrna had was a very large and thriving Jewish population. Now the thing is that that for years, really, centuries almost, the, the Jews had gotten a pass on all of that Caesar worship mumbo-jumbo. Because the Jews were an ancient people. Though the the Romans looked down on them as sort of antiquated, sort of archaic, they were at least respectable. They had a thing going, and, and the Jews had proven that if you pressed them too far on their religious beliefs, they would turn into a violent revolt. And so they left them alone, and they said, you know what, you don't have to sacrifice to Caesar, just pay your taxes and make sure that you offer prayers for Caesar in your tabernacle and, and in your temple and in your synagogues, and that's enough, you, you don't have to do it. And for a very long time in the first century, the Christians were seen under this umbrella that Rome called Judaism. They were just a, another offshoot of the same branch, and they were given all of the same benefits and all of the same allowances. And you, you know, you, you Christians, we don't care what sect you're a part of. You're, you're all in Judaism, and so you don't have to do this sort of thing. But later in the first century, the Jews were beginning successfully to convince the Romans that the Christians were another thing altogether. They're just different. And, you know, we Jews, we're the only ones who really worship the God of Scripture, and these Christians are blasphemers. And they're seditious rabble, and they're just hogging space in the system. And, and oughtn't you just to get rid of them? And so they were slandered, and they were accused. People would hear uh, things that happened in Christian worship services behind closed doors, like a love feast and like eating the body and the blood. And they'd say, those Christians, you know, they're cannibals. We ought to get rid of them. And I heard they've been drowning their children because they're baptizing their babies and all sorts of other things, and they were slandered, and they were called evil people. And the pressure of tribulation increased. Around that same time, toward the end of the first century, the pressures of poverty and slander were growing into the pressures of imprisonment and death. And in the ancient world, those two almost always went together, by the way. There was no mass system of incarceration. We didn't, in the ancient world, they didn't put somebody uh, in a prison cell and leave them there for 15, 20 years. Prison was a holding pattern until the magistrates could decide on an appropriate sentence. And maybe that sentence was exile, like John on Patmos, just removed. Not in prison, but just get rid of them. Maybe the sentence was a flogging, maybe a, a, public, uh, a, a public lashing. Uh, before the people. Maybe that sentence was death. But these people in Smyrna, these believers, knew what it meant when the Lord said, you'll be cast into prison. It means that something else is coming. And the next logical thought is, you're going to need to be faithful unto death, because those two go together. And maybe it happened in Smyrna the way that it happened in Jerusalem for Paul. And the satanic slander of the Jews against the Christians 
rose to the attention of the officials. And, and the Christians were already on the bottom of the rung of society's ladder, and it was easy enough just to get rid of them, easy enough just to, uh, to get rid of a few Nazarene beggars rather than uh, deal with a riot in the city. And so you see that building pressure in Smyrna. It was poverty, and it was slander, and it was imprisonment and death. Now, if you're reading the pages of history, you will see this played out a thousand, thousand times in the history of the church. In 1572, it was the massacre on St. Bartholomew's Day. The 15,000 French Huguenot Protestants were slaughtered. 25 years later, in 1597, 26 Christians are tortured and crucified outside of Nagasaki, Japan. There were the Scottish Covenanters who lived and worshipped in caves. There were the Armenian Christians who were all but exterminated at the end of the 19th century. There were the Russian believers who were dragged off the labor camps and shot by their newly communist government. This is the pressure that's faced by our brothers and sisters today in the city of Jos in Nigeria. Jos is in a state known as Plateau State. And Plateau State is directly beneath the states in the north that are governed by Sharia law and far away from the south where there is a large Christian population. And yet there are believers in Jos close to that border and they know what this is about because raids and executions and violence are a weekly occurrence in Joss. I read a report this week that said since January in Plateau State in Nigeria, 6,000 Christians have been murdered. And this is real, and this is happening. This is the tribulation that is faced by our brothers and sisters in Laos. And they are given a choice. You can sign a form uh, that says that you recant your faith in Jesus Christ, or you can simply give up your house and your job and your family and your possessions and live as one of these destitute, slandered ones. This is happening. This is the call that many of Christ's children face, to realize that faithfulness in a sin-darkened world means tribulation. It means poverty and slander and imprisonment and death. And if you are reading also the pages of the New Testament, you get the impression that this is typical of Christ's church. This is the normal state of affairs. That's what Peter said to persecuted believers in his day. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised. The fiery trial, when it comes upon you, to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Do not be surprised, he said. Don't think that it's a strange thing when you face tribulation and the press of persecution because you happen to be a believer in Jesus Christ. That's not strange. That's normal. It is normal because Satan is still at work in the world. The prince of the power of the air is still blinding the eyes of unbelievers and inciting them to slander and violence against Christ's church. And it is normal. This is important for us as well. Because the press of tribulation in America, let's be honest, is nowhere near what we hear of in Joss or Laos or any of these other places or Pakistan that we prayed for today, or North Korea, let's not kid ourselves. The press of tribulation is not the same here. But the post-Christian West is slowly waking up to how abnormal it has been for so long 
for Christians to have a prominent place in society and just to get a pass. And that tide is changing very slowly in, in little tiny ways, and maybe you've seen it. It used to be that Christians in America were seen the way that Jews were seen in Rome. Well, they're old-fashioned, but at least they're respectable. And the worst they would say, oh, they're a goody-two-shoes. Uh, they're no fun. They don't want to do anything with you. But now uh, the, the narrative has changed, and the, fl the slander is flying in our culture. It's the Christians who are amoral. And you're hateful, and you're bigoted, and you're closed-minded, and you know all the things that are said, and the slander is beginning. In the first centuries, Christians were called atheists because they worshipped a God that nobody could see. Today we're called intolerant, which in our society might be the, the modern-day equivalent. That's about the worst thing you can be today, is intolerant of somebody else, because we refuse to call darkness light and light darkness, and the slander comes. We're called imperialists because we believe that missionaries ought to go out into all the world and to preach the doctrine of Christ and salvation only in Him and preach conversion and faith and new life in Jesus Christ and we're seen as haters of culture and imperialistic. Christian intellectuals are lampooned and forced out of teaching positions because they refuse to bow the knee to the dogmas of materialism and evolution that holds so much sway in our contemporary culture. And already Christians are losing businesses and Christian colleges are losing accreditation. And the respectability level of real biblical Christianity in our culture is plummeting, and you've seen it. I'm no prophet, I'm no son of a prophet, and I hate to think of myself as some kind of a fearmonger, but I think it's completely uh, legitimate for us to understand that unless the Lord should restrain the sin of our culture and our nation, there will come a time, and somebody who is sitting here today in our lifetime will see when certain portions of God's word are labeled as hate speech, and anyone who wants to speak about those things or preach about those things will face slander and poverty and imprisonment. It's happening. But it's normal. Don't be surprised at that. If this is what happens for Christ's suffering church, this is normal. It is typical. It's typical of the church in much of the world today and in small, increasing ways it is typical of the church here as well. And so don't be surprised. Rather, be faithful. Be faithful even in pressure. Be faithful even when slandered. Be faithful and like Polycarp of Smyrna and like a million others like him, be fearless. That's the message we get from our comforting Savior today. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. That's what he says to them. And the passage is full of reasons why we ought not to be afraid of the press of tribulation, even if it should come in our culture. He says first that here's a reason we ought not to be uh, fearful. That Jesus knows the suffering of his church. Jesus knows the suffering of his church. Of course that means that he knows it intellectually, that it has not escaped his grasp, that the omniscient, all-knowing Christ sees every violent act committed against his people. He hears every word of slander whispered behind closed doors. He knows all of it. 
He is not ignorant of what his suffering church is facing in the world. Jesus knows the suffering of his church, but there is a greater reality. That Jesus not only knows the suffering of his church intellectually, but he knows it experientially. The tribulation happening in Smyrna was poverty and slander and imprisonment and death. And these are the sufferings of Jesus Christ as well. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, uses that same word for destitution to speak of Jesus in his incarnation. It says that though our Lord Jesus Christ was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, he became destitute, so that you by his poverty might become rich. He was the one who left the throne of heaven to come and to be born to peasants in the backwater of Nazareth, who had not even a place to stay to give birth to their son and instead was born into the cattle stall. Is that not poverty? Does he not know this pressure? Does he not know the suffering of his people? He was the wandering teacher. And birds of the air have their nests, and foxes have holes, and the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he traveled, and he spoke, and he ate, and he drank at the generosity of those who were around him. He knows poverty. He knows that pressure. He knows what it is to be slandered by his own people. The Pharisees gathered around him and they berated him because he was conceived out of wedlock. We were not born of sexual immorality, they told him. And by the way, they called him a drunkard and they called him a glutton. He was reviled because he welcomed sinners and because he ate at the table of tax collectors, but Jesus called all of their slander to account in John chapter 8. Remember what he said. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he doesn't stand in the truth because there is no truth in him, but because I tell the truth, you do not believe in me. Does that sound familiar to you? Revelation chapter 2, verse 9. I know the slander of those who say that they're Jews and are not, but they're a synagogue of Satan. Jesus knows the suffering of his people. Jesus knows what it is to spend sleepless nights in prayer to his Father and submitting to his will, even though it might mean suffering and death. And Jesus knows what it is to be slandered all the way to imprisonment and to death. And to have the so-called Bible believers point their finger at him and say, this man would make himself a king and we have no king but Caesar. Crucify him. Crucify him. He knows the suffering of his people. If you've ever had a child who is seriously ill, it is a great comfort to have doctors or nurses come alongside of you and tell you the treatment that you're about to go through and to say, this is what it's going to look like, and it might be hard, but, you know, this is, this is okay. And that's comforting. That might be comforting. It's another thing entirely to have other parents who have walked the same road come and lay their hand on your shoulder and say, we know. We know what you're going through. This is what Jesus does for his church. I know your tribulation. Don't be afraid. He knows the suffering of his church. These are the words of him who died and came to life, 
And so he says, be faithful even to death. Secondly, Jesus directs the suffering of his church. He's in control. At every moment, at every step along the way, he warns his church, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison in order that you might be tested. And our minds, when we hear that, ought to go directly to Job. Because you remember the scene in the throne room of God and the sons uh, of, of the angels, the sons of God, come and present themselves and Satan, the accuser of the brethren, is there as well. And there is an exchange and it is the Lord who starts the conversation. Have you considered my servant Job? Have you thought about him? Have you thought about his righteousness? Have you thought about the way that he holds steadfastly to me and there is nothing that could shake him? And Satan is always the accuser of the brethren, and so he accuses and he doubts Job. That doesn't mean anything. You've blessed him. But strike him. Stretch out your hand against him. Strike his possessions. Strike his body. He will turn and curse you to your face. And the Lord says, thus far you may go and no farther. And the point is that Job is being tested. But at each stage, the Lord was restricting Satan and restricting what he was going to do, and he was directing the testing and the events all in the order to prove the righteousness of Job. In the Bible, testing of our faith is God's domain. God loves to test the faith of his people because the scriptures speak of our testing of our faith in two different ways. One, there is a testing that proves the genuineness of our faith that shows when all the extemporaneous external things are stripped away, that faith is really an inward work of the Holy Spirit on the life of the believer, not something we've manufactured for ourselves, and not something that is tied to transient things that could come and go. And so sometimes the Lord tests his people to reveal what he is doing, to prove the genuineness of our faith. Sometimes he tests his people in order to strengthen our faith. But there is a kind of refining going on. There is a strengthening. There is a testing that in stripping away all of those external things, the Lord is showing us, not the world around us, but he's showing us that he is the only one who is worth looking to and longing for. The Lord loves to test the faith of his people. And so, yeah, Jesus says that they're going to be tested, but he also says these are the words of the first and the last. That's sovereignty language. That is an almost exact quote of Isaiah. The Lord says, I am the first and the last. Before me there was no God formed. If there was another one, let them tell you what's going to happen and let it come to pass. And the Lord says, I'm the first and the last and here's what's going to happen for ten days. And you're going to be tested, but as Martin Luther said, even the devil is God's devil. And the Lord is restricting at every turn what the devil may do. And he is directing at every turn what this test is all about. Satan is bound. He is restrained. And your testing is only so far that your faith may be proven or strengthened. And so take comfort. Do not fear, says the Lord. The first and the last. Jesus directs the suffering of his church. And then lastly, Jesus rewards the suffering of his church. He knows the suffering. He directs the suffering and he rewards the suffering of his church. I want to encourage you today to take this passage and take these promises that the Lord has given. And if you have an hour, if you have...
30 minutes by yourself. The kids are down for nap. It's late in the evening, whenever it might be. Just read these promises. Can you imagine? We can scarcely conceive of it. He says, I will give you the crown of life. You will not be hurt by the second death. Immortality in his presence is the reward that he gives. Salvation from the wrath that is to come because of our sin. A place among the shining righteous ones who will behold the face of the Lord for infinite days in his presence. It takes the breath away to think of it. And Jesus rewards his suffering church. And for that reward, he requires our faithfulness, our victory. Our victory over the press of tribulation that would tempt us to abandon the Lord Jesus Christ or to deny Him in our daily walk. And that's what it says, but you need to know that even though the Lord requires your victory, it is not your victory that wins the reward. It is the victory of Christ, our King. He was the one who was faithful unto death and the one who died and now lives the one who conquered slander and sin and even death itself. Later in Revelation, it speaks of the second death, the lake of fire that burns forever, and it says that into that lake, into that second death, will be cast death itself. Your victory cannot overcome death, but his can, and his has. And that's the victory that wins the reward, and all the Lord calls us to do is to follow him. You'll see it this week if you happen to turn on your television. Once the World Cup is over, you might get bored and, and turn to the Tour de France. The most famous road race, cycling race in all the world. They're now in their second week. And if you turn, if you look there, invariably you will see some poor guy out at the front of the peloton, the whole pack, and he is grinding and he is straining and he is sweating and he is pressing ahead 30 miles an hour for 100 miles or more, and he is taxing himself. And then the camera pans back, maybe 15, many 20 spots, and there's the rest of his team. And they're having a sip of water. And they're eating an energy bar, and they're looking at resplendent fields of, of sunflowers as they ride by and taking in the scenery. And the thing is that that person at the front and all the effort that he's putting forth and the draft that is created by him and that massive train of witnesses behind him is pulling his team along, making every pedal stroke easier and making every mile lighter. And this is what the Lord is saying. I have gone before you. I've done the hard work. And I've won the victory. And all you have to do is follow me. That's what it means to be a conqueror in Christ. It means to set our eyes in faith on him who has conquered death and hell forever. And in seeing him and his victorious life and death and resurrection, to hold fast to him and to receive from his hand the crown of life. Dear Christian, this is what we need to be praying for our brothers and sisters around the world today as they face tribulation and poverty and slander and imprisonment and death, that their eyes would be turned to Jesus Christ, the victorious one, 
and looking at him in faith, they would be made fearless and faithful. This is what we need to be praying for ourselves as well. As as the grip of tribulation just barely begins to tighten in our culture. Pray that we would not grow weary of Jesus. That we would not fear slander on account of his name. Such a light thing. And blessed are you when men persecute you and say all manner of evil things about you on account of my name. Blessed are you, he says. That we would not fear slander. Pray that we would be willing to own him and to love him and to follow him faithfully. This is the message of our comforting Savior for a suffering church. Dear Christian, do not fear. Jesus Christ is the first and the last. He is the one who has died and who lives forever. He is the one who has conquered. And he bids you to come and follow him. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, righteous King and Judge, you who are victorious through your Son, Jesus Christ, give us faith in him. Test us, prove us, strengthen us. Make us to stand firm and steadfast and fearless on the foundation of Jesus Christ. There is no other foundation that can be laid, no other way that we can begin our way to you. Oh, we pray especially for brothers and sisters in Pakistan and, and in Joss and Laos and a thousand other places around the globe who are looking to you and who are looking at tribulation straight in the face. Oh, put steel in their spines. Oh, put faith in their hearts. Oh, put Christ in their gaze. Cause us to look to you. Save us and keep us. Faithful to you, for your name's sake, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.